Ashley. Lord Ashley just pops in like, what? No, I just, I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> I just walked into this conversation. I was just washing out my dishes and everything. So all I heard was, yeah, I'm not, I, I am attracted to this and that. But listen, I like me a good black dick, okay? Chocolate. Because I know there were white men. See, white men are scared to talk to me. Like, I know some of them are attracted to me because, you know, I'm curvy. I got I'm shapey. That's Most white men are afraid to talk to anyone that's not a white woman because that's uh, mm. true. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. they're white men and they're fragile as fuck. But mm. I feel like they have a certain type, right? Like not all white men, but majority. So they have a type where they, the woman has to have natural hair. She can't have processed hair. She can't have a weave, right? Mm. Um, it, they do some have a type. Mm-hmm. They have to wear, you know, nice clothes. They got to be nice, dressed and polished, bright, shiny teeth. Um, let's see. Don't wear errands like mine. Don't wear Coke, big glasses like Ash, Lauren Ashley's. Don't be as unapologetically, unapologetically black like myself and, and Lauren Ashley. So they don't like that. Well, fuck them. Yeah. Or don't. Oh, actually, don't fuck. I was going to say. Welcome to the weekly show about art, politics, and pop culture from a phenomenally female perspective. I'm Eliane. I'm Shantae. I'm Sarah. I'm Lauren Ashley. I'm Katie. And this is Unapologetically She. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Unapologetically She. This is episode nine, ladies. Can you believe it? We're wow. really doing this damn thing. We are. That's yeah, kind of like, if you're not tuning in, it's like, what the fuck are you missing? You're you're missing out on the most, okay? So They're about to find out. They're about to find out. Yes. So this is going to be a, a, a little different than our usual flow, but, you know, with Mother's Day, so close by, we decided that we really wanted to focus on an issue that touches every single one of us in a different way. Um, We're going to discuss maternity, motherhood, maternal health, and just really how that affects different women in different ways. And that's going to be our our special misinformation war room this week. Oh, that's a heavy topic. I'm like, just putting <laughs> it out there, ladies. What, where do we even begin? I feel like a good place to begin is the com- a conversation that we were having offline um, where Sarah gave me something that I really needed to hear, which I mean, because we're told at 35, your eggs are going to start to rot and you're not going to be able to be a mom and blah, 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 blah. I'm about to turn 35. I'll be 30. Well, Listeners, I will have turned 35 two days ago as of um, <laughs> when this episode drops. Um, and Sarah, I don't know if that'll be a good segue for you to what you shared with us. I, you know what? Go with what you want to say. Okay. And if it's a good segue, then I'll just, I'll pop in. Okay. <laughs> so I've always wanted to be a mom. Um, I'm not like, a, I'm about to turn 35. I'm not like in a place to start yet because like I haven't moved out of my mom's house I got personal life shit to get cleared up before I'm situated and just there's a lot of just there's a lot of societal stress placed on women about when we become mothers Mm -hmm. um and if once you hit 30 oh my god are you ever gonna have kids and honestly it's like you're adding anxiety to anxiety that I already have Mm -hmm. and I will. And so like, I've been scared about like, okay, well, I'm about to turn 35. My life is going in the right direction now so that I can plan 
but then will will I run into difficulties? Will I run into complications getting pregnant um, at 36, 37? Like that's been, I, I've honestly, I've managed not to have any panic attacks about it recently, but it's always in the back of my head because we're all, we're constantly being told this, like your, your eggs are gonna start to, you know, go bad or blah, blah, blah. And I know, I watched, um, even though he's a bit of a Bernie bro, Adam Ruins Everything. I really liked that show. And he did do an episode where there was a woman um, who was an, I guess an, an expert, I can't remember what she was, but she talked about how that whole 35 thing is bullshit. And it's like mm -hmm. based on, based on a study that was done on French women in like the 18th century, I think. Where the, the life expectancy was a hell of a lot lower than it is now. Are you kidding me? See, and that was my, that was my response. That was my response. And even having like gotten that information and we talked offline a little bit about it and about it not, absolutely not being too late for a woman to start in her mid thirties having kids. But um, I still get anxiety. I don't know how you all feel. Um, those of us who don't have children, whether, whether you want to be a mom, like, I don't want to, you know. Well, I can say something. We're close in age, Lauren Ashley. I'm a year older than you. I just made 36 on April 21st. And I can say, everybody keep asking me, so when you gonna get married? When you gonna have kids? Because mm -hmm. recently in my building, I gave little Easter baskets to like five kids in my building. No, four kids in my building that, you know, speak, you know, and say hello. Mm -hmm. I live on the Upper West Side, even though I am from Harlem, but I came from the era where everybody in my building, they spoke to people. So like I live on the Upper West Side, you would think like that, like, but no, these are gentrifiers, but they're kids you know, black kids in particular, they speak and they say hello. So it's a different when kids being raised, depending on how it is not saying, you know, not going to get into that. But one of the parents that I gave the bastards for their child, it was like, so when you won't have kids one day, and I'm just like, when I get so married, rude. and people were like, so why you want to wait till you get married? Because I want to have kids with someone that I love, that I love and I cherish. And yes, I'm getting older and my eggs, but then you have people like Sarah, you have people like um, Tamara Hall, you mm -hmm. have people like Tony, not Tony Braxton, people like, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Janet Jackson, who had kids over 40, close to 50, or even over 50, and mm -hmm. they had healthy pregnancies. I think Julianne Moore had a child when she was in her mid 40s as well. Who? Yeah. yeah. So, and, and for, to clarify for any of our listeners, what Shantae and Lauren Ashley are talking about when they keep referring to me on this is that I had my daughter when I was 37. So I was late in the game on it and that was fine. I was comfortable with that. So that's, that's where it's coming from on the misconceptions where people, you know, once you're 35, your eggs start to dry up and that's well, where my that's kid have like in. health problems because I got pregnant later. All this, all of this shit. Yeah. Right. I get asked that a lot. Like I just turned 38. Yeah. Lord. <laughs> I had to remember what age I was again. And uh, since I was 25, well, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? All that. And there's been periods in my life where I've wanted kids, but the majority of the time I've never wanted them. It's never mm -hmm. been my thing. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, it was a contention with my ex too, because she wanted them, but she wasn't sure. And then of course, you know, when we got together, it's like in a month that I moved here, people are like, oh, when are you guys going to have kids? And I was like, it's one. I just moved here. Why the fuck are you asking that? Mm -hmm. And, two, and like, how is it any of your business? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, as a lesbian couple, it's not just the simple thing to do that. Like if we mm -hmm. had chosen to have kids, the costs alone, are like, you know, she's not going to go sleep with some random dude on the street. <laughs> and if she did and got pregnant and we decided to raise it like I have to be able to adopt that child yeah. you know the cost to adopt that mm -hmm. it's like you know like well costs aren't important people have it all the time I was like yeah I don't know what people do that's fine for them it didn't work for a lesbian couple like right <laughs> doesn't yeah and right. you know and one of my reasons I was born with health issues that have caused you know I stopped having periods at the age of 25 just randomly out of nowhere they randomly came back just 12 years later out of nowhere and so it's always been like well health issues like and then that's really hard to go into because a lot of people like when they ask that question it's it's a very personal like I've had struggles really hard to be open about 
one of the reasons like I don't one the health issue that I was born with I don't want to pass that on to my kid mm. I've hated it all my life or what I've had to deal with and I want to pass that on to somebody else and that's selfish but I was like I don't care I don't want a child to deal with and then a young adult to deal with what I've had to do but with. I mean is it really selfish it's not I don't and then the entitlement that people think that they deserve an explanation for your decision right and I mean I'm sorry but what's what is selfish with you not wanting to burden a child with something that has been a burden to you and has been harmful to you that is not selfishness no you have to be ready for motherhood right even though you say Mm -hmm. you don't have a tool book and anything to be prepared for motherhood you have to be prepared got to be mentally prepared and at a place to be a mother or somewhere it has to change your life to be a mother I know for a black woman and I learned this in school I learned this in college like the sterilization of black women of having kids in the late 60s and early 70s they try to sterilize us because Mm -hmm. they claim that we had too many kids I mean the baby boomer age every fucking woman was having at least about five to like 10 kids my grandmother had 11 my mom's mom she had 11 my My, mine had six 15 outside outside of the marriage okay Women were having children and not just even that. Women was having children because their man came home from the war of World War II. And, you know, that was that baby boomer age, 1945 to 1965. My mother was born in 53. Okay, excuse me. Excuse me, y'all. I burped. Sorry. But I'm just saying, <laughs> the simple fact is they tried to sterilize Black women. And some Black women actually died from the sterilization. And even during childbirth, if you don't have a healthy childbirth, women die from childbirth. And that's why this bill, mm-hmm. Warren Underwood, mm-hmm. so introduced with the then Senator, now Vice President Kamala Harris, to talk about Black maternal health, because it's a real thing. Like, doctors don't know how to treat Black women when it comes to our health, when it comes to maternal health, when it comes to fibroids. Like the whole fibroid conversation. Why are we having this conversation now in 2022? We should have been having this conversation a long time ago. And that's why it's important to have this conversation to understand that Black women are three times, four times most likely to die from childbirth or some type of sterilization than white women. So when white women come to say like for me, Lauren Ashley and Elian, because we don't have no kids, why you don't have no kids yet? I'm like, we want to go to a good doctor. We want to make sure we're healthy. We want to make sure our eggs is healthy. We want to make sure the person we with is, you know, stable to have children with us. And even if you go to a simulation clinic, like that sperm clinic, you don't want to inject, you know, somebody's sperm that's fucking crazy. And I see why Katie don't, you know, you don't want to have a, a, a child that's a serial killer. Right? Exactly. <laughs> no. Yeah. There's, there's oh, you just made me think of Serena. Serena Williams almost fucking died. I was actually, I was just thinking about that. I that's oh, one of the points. Millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was that was that was one of the things I wanted to touch on, just because my own personal experience with uh, with maternal health, and compared to what she experienced, like, okay, so my daughter was my fifth pregnancy. And she's the only one that I carried even close to term. She was five weeks early and I had to have an emergency C-section. I went into labor, my water broke five weeks early. I went into the hospital, they let my labor progress and she started showing signs of distress. And that was after I'd gotten my epidural. I was gonna try for a natural childbirth, but I said, fuck this, give me the epidural. So they gave me the epidural and her heart rate started dropping during my contractions and they weren't picking back up Um, and they didn't know why. So they rushed me in for an emergency C-section and we found out that I had placental abruption, which meant that part of my placenta had detached from my uterus and it was, it put my life at risk and it put Dina's life at risk. So it had I had to have a C-section period. That's, it had to be done. Um, The care that I received afterward was phenomenal. It was great. You know, here I was a lower middle-class white woman with her husband and her baby getting childcare at a hospital in Scottsdale, Arizona where my daughter was born. 
you know, um, they had me on morphine for the first 24 hours after my C-section. Nurses were coming in every single time that my breathing rate slowed down because morphine can make you stop breathing. So they were coming in all the time, checking on me. They were checking my wound. You know, they were checking the incision site. They were checking on my daughter. You know, she didn't have to go to NICU, which was amazing. Five weeks early, she never had to go to NICU. She was healthy. I got amazing care. And then I read about what happened with Serena Williams. Serena Williams is clearly a famous Black woman very well off because she's an amazing athlete and is married to a billionaire and is married to a billionaire. It's so not, it's not like, a question of money. Exactly. It's not a question of money or having good health care because you know, they do. Okay. So Serena did a Vogue profile after the birth of her child and it came with the health risks, not only of childcare of childbirth, but maternal health afterwards. And what, what she had said was, and we all know that she, she had an emergency treatment for a life-threatening embolism in 2011. So she had that prior history as well. So she knows what her health is like. She knows her health history and she knows when something is wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So after she had a C-section, she had the same procedure as me. She had a C-section, probably not for the same reasons, but she had a C-section is major surgery. In addition to, uh, you know, with childbirth, it is a major surgery. It is a life-threatening surgery. Mm -hmm. And she walked out of her hospital room because she couldn't breathe. And she knew her health history of these embolisms. So she couldn't breathe. So she walked out of her hospital room so her mother wouldn't worry about her told the nearest nurse between gasps that she needed a CT scan with a contrast and an IV of heparin, a blood thinner, right away. She knew her condition. They ignored her. They ignored her. We know why. She is a black woman. It's not that she didn't have good health care coverage. It's not that she didn't have the money. But and it's not that she didn't her. have, that she not to cut in, but... She's the top athlete in the fucking world. So it's not even that she wasn't taking care of herself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like the United States has the worst maternal mortality in the developed world. And it is disproportionately black women who are affected by that. And I just, you know, and I'm gonna let you, Lauren Ashley and you, Shantae, speak on the maternal mortality and the maternal health of black women because you obviously know more about that than I do. But I had wanted to point out just my personal experience where my treatment as an average white woman, nothing special, was better than what Serena Williams was given when she should have been given better than what she received, but the same treatment that I did. Mm -hmm. It's, that was one of the reasons that I supported Kamala Harris's run when mm -hmm. she first announced for president. So I'm gonna leave it to you and Shantae to speak specifically on black women with that. I wanna go like from a more, from the personal angle, which is so, not to get too much into my personal life, but I'm at a point where I'm like, I know that within the next couple of years, I'm going to become a mother. Like that's, that's the plan, but I'm terrified for every fucking reason that Sarah just said, just like a week ago, I was like, okay, so like, yeah, like, you know, and especially, and I'm again, thank you so much for that, for that chat that we had last week, because I was like, yeah, okay. So like, like a year or two, I'll be ready and 37, I'll be okay. It'll be okay. And I started thinking and I was like, but and I say I'll be ready. I mean, like, if things keep going smoothly, we'll see. But um, then I started thinking and I'm like, but do, do I want to have a kid in America? This is where my head was going. I'm like, I live on the border. Maybe I should have a child in Toronto instead. Um, me and my, my, um, whom, whom, my potential, the potential father of the child, we would both be American citizens. So the child would still be a citizen, would still get that American passport. But that's the thing that's like really been on my head and it's really been weighing on me heavily. I'm like, I don't know that 
that I want to have a baby in the United States. And it's specifically because of that. It's specifically because of what happened to Serena. And like my GYN is amazing. And um, my GYN is a, is, is a woman of color. She is, um, she's Arab. And specifically for that reason, like she's been my GYN since I was 18, but like specifically I'm like, it has to be a woman because I'm not comfortable with a man. And it has to be a woman of color. Like my primary, my first primary um, after like leaving my pediatric group was Chinese. My current primary is Indian American. Like I'm very like, because who else is gonna listen to us, right? Um, so I wanted to talk about it from a personal from like a personal perspective because it's really in my head. I'm like, okay, one, two, three years down the line, I'm ready to have a baby. Do I wanna do it here? And Lauren Underwood, the work that she's doing, the work that Kamala has done is so fucking important. Mm -hmm. And it's made me feel better, but honestly, I'm still not comfortable. You know what, Lauren? I am set, set, uh, halfway to, cause to get a little person, my sister was pregnant um, when she first got married, like seven years ago. And she lost her baby because my sister couldn't carry full term. And not knowing, like she had also like cysts and like, I think one of her ovaries or something like that, so she had to get it removed. So that, that, that was the thing. See people, what the problem is, people don't understand black women's bodies. That's, um, besides one of the reasons, that was one of the reasons why I like Kamala, besides the fact that she was the most pragmatic candidate out of that like after she dropped out she had a series of instagram sessions if you follow her instagram she had a series of instagrams so when she talked to women black women black athletes that experienced maternal health and how their life was at risk and see what people don't understand and and i don't want to get political but it's just like it bothers me because you got these old fucking ass dirty dick like saggy dick, saggy balls dropping as Republican men passing these fucking bills, having their sons, you know, be the standard bearers of these bills mm -hmm. to put a muzzle on women's pussies. That's why I don't understand the majority of white women, let's keywords, the majority of white women keep voting for the men that wants to put a muzzle and the women to put a muzzle on your pussy and on your reproductive rights because as you can see black women we suffer 10 times so when you vote mm -hmm. that way white women mm -hmm. black women we suffer you're literally killing us with your fucking votes mm -hmm. literally not figuratively you are literally killing black women you are literally killing brown women i i i was reading the introduction to the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act that Lauren Underwood, Representative Underwood introduced. Um, and so you touched on that statistic a little bit, Sarah, um, about the fact that overall, women in general in the United States have, a, have the highest mortality rate, uh, maternal mortality rate in the developed world. Uh, Black moms are dying at a rate of three to four times the rate. Native women are more than twice the rate. Hispanic women are at two times the rate. And Asian American and Pacific Islanders um, have just under 2%, uh, two times the rate of mortality during childbirth. White supremacy in action in our healthcare system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, for me, this, this topic, I, I was a little bit nervous. I'm not going to lie. You guys, I'm a little bit nervous to talk about it because I'm also a woman of a certain age. <laughs> I'm, I'm 40 and I'm getting that pressure so much from family, you know, uh, I'm the only one of my friends, like from, you know, my, my core friend group from high school, I'm the only one who's not a mother. And for a very long time, I really thought I wanted to be a mother. And it, it was this, this thing that I thought was going to happen. It never kind of worked out that way. Um, I was pregnant twice in my life and both times 
I was testing, testing positive for pregnancy, but they couldn't find the fetus anywhere. It wasn't in my uterus. It wasn't even in my fallopian tubes. It, so it wasn't technically diagnosed as an ectopic pregnancy. It was, guys, they literally called it pregnancy of undetermined location. And so that was very dangerous because they don't know where they don't know where it is. I mean, ultrasounds, weekly blood tests. Like I looked like I was shooting up heroin at one point with the bruises all over my arms because for weeks I would have to go for, you know, two times a week blood test just, and I was still testing positive for pregnancy, but it was nowhere to be found and eventually had to take the, the radiation shot, um, to dissolve it. The first shot didn't work both times. So I had to have it twice. Um, the second pregnancy, they were like, okay, so we know you've got a history of this. Um, and they scheduled the DNC. No fetal tissue was found after the DNC. I, I was, was going to say, how can you have a DNC if they can't find the fetus? They just wanted to know, like, was there maybe remnants, right, of, a, of fetal tissue? Because maybe it just never developed big enough to be seen anywhere, right? That's what they were hoping. No fetal tissue. And I was still testing positive for pregnancy for weeks. And so it was a, a languishing, long, 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 long process that second time. And it happened right as we went into quarantine for fucking COVID. And so I was in my apartment, you know, I had a roommate, but like really going through this alone, my partner at the time wasn't there you know what I mean? And shortly after that, we, he dumped me. <laughs> it's, it's like a whole thing, right? While I was still testing positive weekly. Like, so it, it was really, uh, it was a lot. It was really traumatizing because it went on for so fucking long. And you're just like, I don't even know what's going on. You know, I would have to go to work with like a piece of paper that said, like, if I pass out, I might be internally bleeding, like to give to like, you know, so random, random people. Right. Um, I am so sorry that you had to go yeah. through that alone. I've never been pregnant before because I don't, because there were certain men you just don't want to get pregnant by. And my exes yeah. didn't want to get, I don't want to get pregnant by you because I didn't want to deal with your family and I don't want to deal with you. But you know, I, 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 I feel for you because like people like you, people like my sister who love children and Lauren Ashley you know, and what Sarah went through is like, you guys want to be mothers. And I don't want to say this and, and don't charge it to my heart, but it's like, there's certain people that don't deserve to even birth in this world because it's like, you're abusing your child and, and mm -hmm. whatnot, but that's a whole nother conversation. But back to you, Eliane, like you love children and you can see it. And when you work with your kids and you're like, this kid's going to get an A, I swear to God, she's going to get an A. They're your babies. Yeah, they are my babies. And I, I've been coming to this realization. So, you know, after that, I went and I saw a fertility doctor and everything. And I said, fuck this. I'm going to do this by myself. I don't care. Uh, I'll use a donor and I'll do this by myself. I'm going to have to, I'm going to give it a try. Just one more try, right? Because I'm getting older and da 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 da, -da. Um, And I went through every step of that process, except choosing a donor. Like I couldn't pull the trigger and something was just holding me back from pulling the trigger. And it was probably fear that the same thing was going to happen again. And like, great, you just spent thousands of dollars. But by the way, New York State now covers those treatments. The only thing they don't cover is, is the sperm. They cover I all. did not know that. They yep. cover all of that's, it. That's a new one. They I passed had absolutely no idea. Yeah, they passed the law that and if you have health insurance, that health insurance must cover that. Yep. For any medication yep. and the visits and the testing and all. I had like extensive fertility testing. Thank you, uh, New York State for that. That, but, that bill was actually under one of my committees for work. Oh, thank you. Cause <laughs> and I just couldn't pull the trigger. And then, and then I met my partner that I have now. And even before I met him though, I kept thinking like, why didn't I take that final step. And I have been coming into a realization that I don't know if I am meant to have kids. I, I don't know anymore. 
right? But I feel so guilty because my family wants it. My mom wants it, you know, societal pressures and, and is it, you know, but it's me. I I don't think I want, I don't think I want to try again. You don't know. And honestly, if you don't want none, that's fine. Because one, you got a a, a future, your future stepdaughter, because you got to claim things into existence. Or my mom saying, claim it name it and claim it as the Clark sisters always say. And then it's just, you know, you know, you got a whole bunch of kids that you have in your class because they're your kids. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, you was meant to meet your partner. We all mm-hmm. love him. We all adore mm-hmm. him. And He's great. I, I keep forgetting the and at Lord Ashley remind me because you're a Baptist, you're Boaz. You have your Boaz. So you have him. You know, I and I will I will add this to Elion, okay? My mom, for years, for years, when I was married to my first husband, when I had my long-term partner of almost 10 years, you know, um, my mom never got a chance to really, she never got a chance to meet my current husband, right? But for all those years, she kept bugging me, when am I going to have grandkids? When am I going to have grandkids? And at the time, you know, I was in school, I was working on college, I was wor- working on building my career within the Air Force and everything else. And, you know, I mean, there was a part of me when I finally got pregnant with my daughter, and I was able to keep the pregnancy past the first trimester. You know, there was a part of me that felt guilty because my mom wasn't there. But at the same time, even now where my daughter's now eight years old, I have no regrets in giving to that pressure, even though my mom is gone. I have no regrets not giving into that pressure. So fuck societal standards. Fuck that pressure. You do what feels good and right to you. And nobody knows, nobody, you're the only person who knows what's right for you. And I'm sorry, I was getting emotional because I'm just like, you went through all that shit. So for anyone to be like, but when are you like, what the fuck? And I know that people don't do it with like ill intent. When it's our family, it's typically, it's, well, I would hope that typically it's not ill intent. It's just like, oh, well, we can tell you would be a great mom. And it's like, yeah, but how do you think I feel mm-hmm. when you put this on me Yep, and yep. it's not happened yet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I will say I got, I got lucky with my parents. Like that's never been a pressure point for them. And I, and I thought about that for a long time and, and I realized, so I've never talked about this ever, but with like my barely with my mom my parents know because well they were there um and then one best friend and my ex-partner um but at 18 I had a vaginal surgery because my vaginal canal was basically a quarter of an inch um so they actually had to go in and widen it and so physically impossible to even have sex which my parents were like 18 she doesn't have to have sex yet so they didn't have to worry about that but I mean up there jokingly joking aside um I think they've always known that that you know kids were never going to be a possibility for them my brother has the same disorder that I have and one of the contentions with him and his ex-wife that that happened but you know I'm thankful and I I always wondered that but then it kind of just kind of all because I've been writing a book about all all that I've gone through since I was born with this disorder, the surgeries that I've had to go through with it and everything I've had to face with um, going through this process of going back and forth. And I think it was at like the age of 10 that I decided I didn't want to have kids, but I always thought I was going to adopt. I got to my twenties. I was like, I don't even think I want to adopt. If I do, I do amazing opportunity out there who go that route, but um, that's, there's that pressure where it's like there's these things you just don't want to have to explain to people and 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 black and latino families like we all they pressure us to have children oh my god that pressure is on my mother's like look if you can't have no kids that's fine because my mom said i'm not staying home with nobody's kids she likes to go out my father's too mean and so like they like listen if you can't have kids it's fine as long as you're here that's all that matters that's yeah that's what my parents Mm -hmm. said they're like hey we're going you know we'll keep going take you to st thomas and Yeah, these type of things. We're all going to Paris in a couple of years with me and my aunts and her and my mom. So 
Listen, these grandparents don't want to be grandparents. They want to exactly. Be I think okay. <laughs> these grandparents now, like, like these, like older people are like not looking at the grandparent aspect. They're just like, no, I want to retire and live my best life. Exactly. And like do the stuff that I missed out on when I was in my twenties and thirties when I was like I'm trying to get my life straight and raising these kids. Yeah. You know, my mom. My mom has taken a different route, which is stealing her sister's granddaughter <laughs> um my cousin one of my cousins has a three-year-old and my mom was like well I can be an extra grandmother and her actual grandmother who is her was like what the hell what what is happening <laughs> and she's like oh no 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 it takes a village which is 100 true. Yeah, that's the way our family exactly. operates anyway it's like yeah, no I'll, right. I'll take this baby for a while <laughs> and my mom said hell no yeah. Any, any path that anyone has taken, that any woman has taken towards motherhood or to not participate in being a mother, that's the right way for them. And, I, and yeah. I, that's what really, we all have such different perspectives on this topic and we're really all coming from different points of view. And it's just nice to see that. You're not alone, even when everyone's choice and everyone's intention and the reason why is so different, but we're all, we can all understand each other. And that feels good, you know, to have a, a little sisterhood to talk about this with, because this is a topic that women deal with all the time and then maybe not talk about as much as, as yeah. it's, it's yeah. a delicate topic for a lot of women. Well, I should say for a lot of uterus havers. Yes. It's also, there's, yeah. there's, sh there's shame tied into like what you haven't done. Yeah. Especially by the time you get like, by the time you reach 30, like, yeah. yeah. All of our ages, we've all dealt with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, definitely an important topic for all of us to talk about being, you know, the different paths and everything that we've all been on. So it was like really good to talk about it with everyone and get everyone's thoughts. So I don't know, but we're gonna, we're gonna conclude this portion of the episode and we're going to go ahead and move into our interview with stand-up comic, critic, journalist, and sketch screenwriter and sketch artist, Sherry Flanders. Hi, welcome back to Unapologetically She. This is Sarah, and today we will be interviewing Sherry Flanders. Sherry is an actor, writer, and comedian based in Chicago who teaches improv and musical improv at the Second City Training Center. She is an alumni of the Infinite Sundays, Second City's Music House Ensemble, who wrote and staged the satirical musical A Better Brother's Grimp. Her other works include the include Choice the Musical and several screenplays and sketch shows with the musical sketch duo Flanders. She is a graduate of the Second City Conservatory music program and the IO improv and music programs. Uh, her experience includes improv, stand-up, musical theater, commercials, voiceover, and narration, and Shakespeare. She's like a Jane of all trades. <laughs> she is also a member of the American Theater Critics Association and a journalist, and also uh, co-owns and operates Flanders Consulting Services with her husband. So, wow. Hello, Sherry. Welcome. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for having me, everyone. I appreciate being here. <laughs> We're really excited to have you. It's just, um, it's, we've had a few different guests um, already, but we haven't had like any comedy, like any comedians. So uh, don't get super excited up. about that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> we'll go ahead and get it started. Um, Katie is going to kick off our questions. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Sherry. Uh, my first question for you today is what actually got you started in improv and sketch comedy? Wow. It was uh, definitely a happy accident. Um, my husband and I were writing a screenplay together. We had uh, just gotten together. He was working on it with another writing partner who fell off the project. Um, and I like one day just kind of um, as you do uh, in a new relationship, just kind of inserted myself into it. And I looked at it and I was like, you know what? I think I can help with this. And I wrote something to it. And he was like, oh, that's really good. Um, and so we started 
that's when we became writing partners. And then as we were going through rewrites, we're like, this isn't very funny. So we decided to go take classes at the Second City. Um, and I, he took a writing class, um, which he didn't continue on with because he is an English major. And he was like, oh, I can already do better than this. And he's right. Um, and I took an improv class. And I was like, wow, I'm having a lot of fun. You should come over here and join me doing improv. He did. And the rest is history. I just kind of fell down this rabbit hole of performing. I had been a performer years before, but I had, you know, got the straight job, the, you know, the nine to five and uh, really forgot about it. But then I rediscovered my love for it. Um, and I just started doing it more and more. And eventually it wormed its way into my professional career. And so now they're one and the same. Um, and I never really expected that journey, but I've been grateful for it every day. That's awesome. <laughs> Very awesome. So in addition with improv sketch comedy, you're a stand-up comic. Uh, what is your experience as a Black woman in comedy and how does that form your material? Oh, well, it's an interesting question. I will say stand-up is my newest actually part of my um, comedy experience. I'm primarily still an improviser and actually a lot of my stand-up has been cut short because of COVID. So um, just now getting back to the stage, I'm grateful for that. Um, but I will say that it's just a different experience. I think you have to walk onto the stage prepared um, that you could deal, have to deal with anything, right? Um, and that depending on the audience, and I think this is true of every comedian, you always have to be ready to toggle your material um, towards the audience at hand who may or may not get it, you know? Um, you know, I think uh, Dave Chappelle, um, who tragically has uh, had some, sad moments lately. Um, so I even hate to invoke his name, but he, you know, he had the uh, realization that sometimes you're not sure if the audience is laughing with you or at you. And I think that's very true whenever you're a, a marginalized performer um, standing on the stage, you have to say, oh, where, where are we at now? Um, and what can I do to adjust in this room in this moment? Um, but honestly, I haven't let it stop me. I get out there, I say what I want and I deal with it. Awesome. Hi, so it's Lauren Ashley. I've got the next hey. question. Um, you've attended Sundance Film Festival a few times, which I can't even imagine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like as also as an artist, having gone to film school, that just blows my mind. Can What can you tell us about what it was like? How did you end up going? Your experiences there? Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. First thing I got to say is go, 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 go. <laughs> you will have the best time. It is amazing. Um, I ended up going, I was actually on, um, in, on vacation in Mexico and I'm like laying on the beach. I have a pina colada drink. I'm chilling, checking my socials. And someone had tagged me in a post and they were like, Sherry, you should apply for this. Right. And I'm like, I'm on vacation. I don't know if I feel like doing a grant application. Um, and it was a grant application for, um, an inclusion, uh, project for uh, underrepresented journalists. And so I did, and I was like, I'm not gonna get it at Sundance, whatever, didn't even think about it. And then I got it um, and I was really surprised. Um, and it was really an amazing life-changing experience. Um, I was at a point too in my career where I was like a little like, you know, you get, you have those ebbs and flows in the moments where you're like a little disillusioned with, with mm -hmm. art or, your, or whatever you're doing. You're like, ah, I don't know if I still wanna do this or whatever. And it, was so renewing to be surrounded by um, this community of people, of uh, filmmakers and artists um, who really support each other and are really sharing all these creative ideas. And it was just artists everywhere. Um, and it was up in the mountains and I had not dealt with altitude sickness before and I was struggling. Oh, uh, no. the, key, <laughs> the key to that is Gatorade, drink the Gatorade, all the Gatorade, um, the electrolytes help. Uh, but I, it was just amazing. Um, so many panels, um, so many films. I saw all these films like a year before everyone else saw them. And then I'd spend the rest of the year like waiting for everyone else to see them so that I could share the information. Went to all the wonderful after parties. I saw David Diggs and he said hi. And he was very nice. And it was just amazing. He's, he's the loveliest person. Um, so okay, so now I'm actually time. jealous. <laughs> go, go. He actually was giving his telephone number to a woman before me, like, like not like trying to figure out like because he's a generous person and offered the same to me and I was like oh no that's fine because I'm an idiot oh my god you should have said no why don't you say no I was right there with my husband and I was like this would be weird he's gonna think that I'm trying to pick him up my husband was like you should have got his number <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dumbass but I had a great time um I highly recommend going uh it's it really you know up to my game to be in that company of all those people doing really great 
amazing work. Oh my God. Thank you so much. That was awesome. (laughs) I want to go. I want to go so bad. Go. (laughs) Also, I went skiing for the first time. Ooh. Um, And I am not a winter uh, sports person at all. So that was, yeah, it was fun. And that's a good good place for it too, because Park City. Oh, best skiing. So I mean, I started like at the best. So now if I go skiing anywhere else, I'm going to be like, you know, peasants. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I didn't fall. So I don't think that ever happened. So I don't think I can follow up that experience. (laughs) Yeah. As someone who used to live in Utah. Yes. I will say that anytime like with skiing. Oh, peasants. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Also, real talk skiing is the most expensive activity. I had no clue. And I was like, oh my God, what? People pay this much to do this on the regular? Dang. (laughs) I mean, like I'm a runner. So I'm like, you know, all you need is a pair of kicks in the road. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, Sherry, this is Shantae. So- um... Hey Shantae, I got a cousin named Shantae. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yes yeah, so um in addition to many your talents you know you do improv you do acting you're funny so thank you <laughs> no problem so with those many things you also are a journalist so you I have am. many trades and so how do you use that in a space to speak and has it helped Ooh, that's a that's a really great question. Um, again, like so many things in my career, that was an accident that I fell down um, that particular rabbit hole. There was a kerfluffle of a lot of different things happening in the Chicago uh, journalism community where they, again, had a call needing more diverse voices. And um, I'm like, I'm here, I can write, let me try my hand at this. Um, and so I started doing theater reviews um, and was good at it. And then eventually started doing film reviews, you know, hence Sundance. And um, Yeah, it definitely helped. I mean, I think I was just always, um, as some of you who may follow me on social media know, I'm just a person who every once in a while I get a thought in my head and I'm like, I'm going to write about this. And I'm very verbose and I use a lot of words. Um, And, you know, it was very gratifying to realize a lot of people are like, yes, I agree with you. And also maybe I didn't have the words to say that. So I think it helped me recognize that I had a gift maybe for putting things, um, on the page in a way that maybe others weren't able to and that um, it has helped in the way that it helps to create community. I mean, I think sometimes, and this was something that took me a long time to grapple with, um, we think of has it helped in terms of like impact and has it changed the world and did we end slavery? Um, you know, those, you know, those kinds of big questions and, you know, no words by themselves can't do that. It requires deeds, but it does help in terms of creating community, bringing together people um, that are like-minded, creating coalitions, um, uh, raising up people who maybe don't have a voice, um, who aren't getting the spotlight. Um, and so from that perspective, it helps. Well, true, like I said, any form of journalism, any form of anything that can help. I mean, you know, you don't have to be the loudest voice in the room. You just have to be just a meaningful voice in the room because yeah. there's a lot of loud and wrong voices. so loud and wrong oh my god I'm so glad you said that too and um I think one of the most gratifying things too is people who were like you know what I'm glad you said that because now you've gave me the um the strength to speak up um and you know I want to say that to everybody like I guess I've been gifted with the gift of gab because I like to talk and I like to write and I guess I'm good at it um but even if you don't feel that you're good at it I say this to anyone do it anyway because sometimes that's all it takes to create changes for somebody to speak up and even if your voice is shaking and even if your voice is quiet and even if you stumble on for your words still say it because if you get it said nine times out of ten there's going to be five other people behind you going yep 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 what she said and that's why we have unapologetically she because we all come from different spaces some of us have the gift of gab some of us are teachers some of them are into the arts and i'm just a regular schmegula degular just hey i love that i'm gonna use that regular schmegula degular i am too that's the thing like i i'm like when you asked me to be on this podcast i'm like really why do you want me i'm a regular schmegula degular too (laughs) but i appreciate you and um regular schmegula degulars change the world so you're a screenwriter. Screenwriters mm. are storytellers. Storytelling is such a freaking important craft. I, I said that sounds like self-promoting since I, I, I'm a storyteller, but it, it's, it's okay. We have important. to talk after this. <laughs> no, we do. We do. We do. 
Um, so, but like as a screenwriter, so you're telling stories, but you also have the ability to shape messages or to craft a message, to inject messages into your stories, which are then on, I mean, it starts on the page, then it's on the stage in front of an audience. So have your screenplays, have, have they been outlets for issues that are important to you? Have, is there anything, I guess, in life or society that you're like, I need to comment on this? Or, or alternatively, have you looked at your work and gone, oh, I was speaking about this thing. I didn't realize that. Hmm. Well, first off, I'm going to say thank you for being so generous for calling me a screenwriter. I would say I'm an inspiring screenwriter in the sense that nothing has been produced yet, but I appreciate you. And also, if anybody wants to produce a sister, give me a call. You know where I'm at. <laughs> so, you know, number one. Um, but two, I would say yes, and I would say yes. And um, one of those things about art is sometimes if you're like, I have a message and I want to get this out, but you go at it head on, it can sometimes feel like preachy and mm-hmm. like and people don't necessarily can't or like okay this feels like an after school special right so sometimes that's not the approach um and so sometimes you have to tell the story and hold that thought in your head and then sometimes your story wants to do its own thing right that's what at least what happens to me sometimes I'm writing and then I'm chasing after the characters that's me um, too. That's and me then too. I'm like oh I thought this was maybe gonna be about this but then it's gone, you know, it's gone left. And I'm like, oh, here's this other truth. Um, you know, and then sometimes, yeah, I do go at it. I have a very specific idea and I'm like, I'm going to try and find my way, which is usually the harder way for me because then I kind of have to reverse engineer it and um, figure out how do I make what is basically a, you know, political statement or something into something that is a story and it resonates and um, is something that, you know, people enjoy seeing for all the reasons that we enjoy seeing things on screen. Yeah, it's definitely like it feels less organic when you try to approach it that way, right? Yeah, at least for, at least for me, it does. I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> no, yeah, I think it is. It is. Um, but sometimes you get this uh, an idea that is in that form, and you're just like, well, mm-hmm. I just have to, you know, I have to go with it. So wherever you know, I, I try not to judge how the inspiration strikes or how the message comes to me. I just roll with it and, and have to work it from a different angle each time. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, this wraps up our interview with the amazing and hilarious Ms. Sherry Flanders. Um, for those of us, for those of you following us on Patreon, you can get the full interview, uh, which will be continued after this. If you're not on our Patreon, subscribe. We're on the Joyful She, T H E E Joyful She on Patreon. So. Thank you so much for coming, Sherry. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye. So thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Unapologetically She. I'm Eliane. I'm Shantae. I'm Sarah. I'm Lauren Ashley. I'm Katie. Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms at the T-H-E-E Joyful She. Again, at the T-H-E-E Joyful she. We'll see you online.